Hi, friends. Welcome to season two of Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Mark Holland. Mark is a third generation United Methodist pastor and a general conference delegate from the Great Plains Annual Conference. He is executive director of Mainstream UMC, a United Methodist advocacy group working for unity in the body of Christ. Full disclosure, I am a member of the Mainstream Advisory Board. Mark has a public voice within the UMC. But in this interview, we're actually going to hear more of his personal story. We talk about his journey into ministry, his public service in Kansas City, Kansas, and his wider advocacy within the denomination. Mark has a keen understanding of our church's politics, and he's not afraid of being provocative. But what I think you're going to hear in this interview is that all of his work is rooted in a love for the church and a commitment to inclusion for all people. I learned so much about Mark in this conversation, and I think you will find it both interesting and inspiring. So you know what to do. Grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really incredible interview with Mark Holland. Mark Holland, how you doing today? Doing great, Derek. How are you? I'm great, and I'm really excited to have you on the podcast, my friend. Um, uh, loving some of the work that we're getting to do together these days, and um, just the places where we're getting to interact. Um, so I always start the conversation, at least I try to start it at the beginning. So would love to know how you became a United Methodist Christian, God's provenient grace, acting in your life to bring you into our church. Yeah. No, it's, um, I'm a cradle Methodist. I was um, born into the parsonage of um, at London Heights Church here in Kansas City, Kansas, born at a Methodist hospital with a Methodist chaplain. And um, my great grandfather on my dad's side was a Methodist pastor, Emmy South. Um, he was ordained in 1920 in Rogers, Arkansas. And he served 44 years, 20 parishes in 44 years um, in Arkansas, Missouri, and uh, Kansas City, Kansas. What was then the Kansas Conference, which is now the Kansas East Conference, was then became the Kansas East Conference, which is now the Great Plains, mm-hmm. um, which is all of Kansas and Nebraska now. But he was, um, he was, uh, you know, two years, every appointment was two years and out. He actually um, had his books alphabetized in wooden milk crates that he could simply load into his truck and then stack back up in his new office in his new church um, so they'd still be in order. So he didn't even have to pack his books. He moved so frequently. Well, my grandfather didn't want anything to do with the Methodist ministry if it meant moving that often. And so he... um, actually went into the railroad and then real estate, though he did later become a deacon in the Presbyterian church and ran um, a Presbyterian camp in Arkansas um, Mm. until his retirement. So he actually left the railroad 
and went to do the Christian camp. So a call in ministry for him. When he came back, he was a delegate, a lay delegate to annual conference forever in Kansas East hmm. uh, from his local churches. So, so my dad was born into a, 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 a church family and he grew up um, in Argentine in Kansas City, Kansas. He was raised here, went to high school here and Metropolitan Avenue um, church is where he grew up and where he and my mom would be married. He went off to Baker University, which is a Methodist college in Kansas. He met my mom there who was Baptist at the time. Um, but she came over to the Methodists um, when they got married. And, um, and then I was born, his second appointment, he went off to Garrett um, for seminary and then my sisters were born in Junction City when they were serving in Junction City, Kansas. And when he came back to Kansas City, um, I was born and, you know, baptized by my dad at London Heights Methodist Church. And then um, he was transferred to Grandview United Methodist when I was two and we were there until I was 10. And that church um, is where I received my third grade Bible. Um, and then he was transferred to Topeka. He became the conference council director in Kansas East. And it was the only time in my growing up that he wasn't my pastor. Um, and so we went to a church um, in Topeka countryside and I was um, confirmed at countryside. And then for high school, he was transferred back to Kansas City. And um, Lenexa United Methodist is where is the congregation actually that sponsored me for ordination. So seven houses before I was 18, um, and, you know, I always say my uh, joining the church in confirmation was not the most striking uh, commitment to Christ I made. Um, there were my friends were all joining and there were a lot of girls. And I thought maybe if I stood close to one of these tall girls in sixth grade, they'd notice that I was there. That actually didn't work out for me. But we did. Um, I did get confirmed in the church. <laughs> But it was a few years later in high school, actually, when I um, was a youth delegate to annual conference in Kansas East, uh, that I heard my call to ministry. Um, and I usually say, you know, most people lose their religion at annual conference. I actually <laughs> uh, heard my calling mm -hmm. and um, talked to some pastors who were sponsoring the youth at that time. I thought, well, if I talk to them and they're and they don't think it's crazy, then it might be okay. So. They didn't think it was crazy. And so I went all the way through high school. Really, I was 15. I went all the way through high school with the expectation to be a pastor. Went to college at Southern Methodist University as an undergrad to be a United Methodist pastor. And then went to seminary. And so that's been the only path I've been on um, for my for my journey. So that's my that's kind of my ministry. And I would say my commitment to the church when I was in college, when none of my friends went to church was a bigger commitment than confirmation was. You know, we always, people often celebrate the first time when you accepted Christ for the first time. I would say it was a lot harder to accept Christ later on in life, choosing to go into the ministry, you know, choosing to get married, choosing to have kids. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of opportunities we have to accept Christ. And um, my first one was not the most interesting. Wow. So. I have so many questions, Mark, uh, as I normally do. But I'm wondering, did you feel, you know, not just growing up in a preacher's home, but having a legacy of 
preachers as well. Did you feel pressure hmm. towards vocational ministry or? You know, it's an interesting question that I thought a lot about. I, for a long time, people said, would say, you know, when I was in high school and college, they say, oh, you're following in your dad's footsteps. I'm like, well, no, I'm doing my own thing. Well, I was following in my dad's footsteps. And um, I, I, what's, what's true about the call is in some ways it was an option. You know, people, if you've never been to church, the call to be a pastor is a much different thing. Um, but having grown up in the church, had positive, I had a positive experience in the church. I had mm -hmm. a positive experience um, in Sunday school and youth group. Um, and I was involved in, in leadership. Um, I was the president of my youth group. I was the president of the conference council on youth ministries. I was the president of the jurisdictional youth team for South Central my senior year in high school. Hmm. And a delegate to the National Youth Ministries Organization. So all my leadership skills in high school were developed in the church. So for me, it was pretty natural and I never felt any pressure. And what was interesting is when I was ordained deacon in 95, that was under the 92 book of discipline where you were, it was a two-step ordination process. Now deacon is a different track altogether. But mm -hmm. um, back in the day, um, <laughs> I was ordained deacon in 94, I guess. And then in 99, I was ordained elder. Mm -hmm. And on the night that I was ordained elder, my dad came up and gave me a, a package a gift while we were standing there in the, in the gym where I, in where annual conference was, where the ordination service was held. And, and my dad's not a gift giver, right? That's not his language of love. He, mm -hmm. He's not a gift giver, but he gave me this gift and I, he said, go ahead and open it. So I opened it and it was my, um, Great grandfather, gosh, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it again. It was my great grandfather's ordination certificate framed. Mm. And my dad said, I didn't want to give this to you sooner because I didn't want you to feel any pressure that you mm. need to become a pastor. But now that you have, I want you to have it. Mm. Um, and I remember when I was serving at Trinity. I told my dad he retired. And I said, dad, give me your ordination certificate. You're not using it. <laughs> so I had in my office, all three of ours, mine, my dad's, and my great grandfather's on my wall in my office. Um, that meant a lot to me. And that was, um, I still have it, obviously, wow. it's, uh, from 1920. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. So my dad would never put any pressure on me. I, I, I think that I just, I experienced my call to ministry with a lot of support from a lot of my dad's colleagues, um, from a lot of youth folks. I, I got a lot of affirmation early that it was a good, it was a good calling for me. I really appreciate um, sort of the way you talk about accepting Christ into your life and, and these multiple moments of accepting Christ. I really appreciated even naming that, yes, confirmation that, you know, those, those, those first opportunities are really important for sure. But there are these other moments along the way that in some respects are, are, are just as important, um, they're more informed for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so you talked about 
staying connected to church through your college years. Mm-hmm. What was what was that for you? Like what was underneath all of that for you? You know, that's interesting because I attended chapel at Southern Methodist University. Um, nobody else did. I mean, it was a pretty <laughs> small group of church going folks. It was on Sunday morning, mm-hmm. um, which if you know the college crowd, that's not their finest hour. And um, I remember uh, Chaplain Will Finnan was a chaplain of the university at SMU. He's now in Florida. Yes, he is. I've been yes, able to connect, stay connected with him through the years. But he was the chaplain there and he preached. And, um, you know, those years were formative for me because I was involved in a lot of social justice stuff on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, SMU had missed the 60s entirely. And so I've, my friends and I thought we should help them. <laughs> we should catch them up on issues. They probably weren't the only ones who missed the 60s, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, no, that's right. So, and uh, Will Finnan in the chaplain's office was very supportive of that, mm-hmm. you know, that work and that calling. And, you know, I, I attended there for three years, um, every Sunday. And I remember my senior year, I decided to go attend a church in South Dallas that was a um, Spanish speaking church. And so I went down there and it was a small Spanish language congregation, United Methodist. And I attended there for my senior year. Um, but uh, it was in really in college, the decision to go to church. And I'd invite my friends. I'm like, you want to go? They're like, when is it? I'm like, Sunday morning. They're like, what are you doing? Nobody's getting up Sunday morning. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So for me, that was uh, it was an, that faith grounding, weekly faith grounding and worship. And I didn't have a car. So I, my only in college, my first three years, I didn't have a car. My senior year, I had a car. But my first uh, three years, I didn't have a car on campus. So um, I could walk to chapel. And that was my only option for church. So, Wow. So from SMU, you head over to Iliff? Iliff, yep. Iliff School of Theology in Denver. Now, I'll just say that feels, and that may be just my, you know, I've only been a United Methodist, you know, for about 20 years or so. So that feels like a theological step, Mm. if not a leap. Was that, um, you know, from SMU, from Kansas, it feels like going to ILIF is a is a different space, and and was it back then? And which is actually not that long ago. Um, and what? Why did you choose ILIF? Well, I did. So it's an interesting story, actually. I my dream school was Union in New York City. Oh, and I knew I was going there. There was no question. So after I finished SMU, I actually moved to Colorado for a year my uncle ran group homes out there. And so I worked at group homes for emotionally disturbed kids and drug and alcohol treatment for youth. I did that for a year while I applied to school. I was kind of burned out on school. So I thought I'll give myself a year. I'll work for a little bit. So I moved out there with a buddy and um, I worked and applied. So I applied to union. I was accepted. I had a scholarship and I went, I apply, but my scientific search for seminaries went like this. I was at SMU and I thought that was enough of the South for me in Dallas. So I ruled out 
Perkins, Duke, and Candler. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I didn't want to live in Ohio, so that cut two more out. I didn't want to live mm -hmm. in New Jersey, so that cut one out. Um, and I didn't really want to move out to California, so that cut Claremont out. So mm -hmm. um, I circled Iliff, um, uh, Wesley in DC, and Boston University, and Union. And mm -hmm. they were superfluous. I was going to Union. So I applied, I got in, and I went on in February. Oh, I graduated college in 91, so 92, the spring of 92. I would start seminary in the fall of 92. But in spring, I went and visited at student days at Union for the students who were coming. So I'd been accepted, I'd done everything, and I showed up in New York. And of course, it's the Upper West Side. I mean, it's right by Riverside Church. It's just this, it's in consortium with Columbia University. I mean, it's it's everything, you know, a kid from Kansas could want. But I went into, um, I went to Union and I had a terrible experience. Mm. Um, and I've talked to some people later who said the early 90s at Union was kind of a dark time. Hmm. Um, but I remember sitting down in a class, uh, you know, I'm a, new, I'm, a, I'm a prospective student. And I sit down in class, you know, I'm early, so I'm waiting for class to start. And um, a woman comes in and says, you're sitting in, my, in our spot. I said, our spot? We have spots? She said, yeah, you can't sit there. Hmm. And I said, well, why can't I sit I mean, what? And she said, no, this is where the lesbian students sit. I said, oh, I said, well, where does a prospective student sit in this class? And she said, well, you'll sit over there. Those are the, those are, those seats are available. Well, folks sat in class in caucuses, apparently. Um, and then that happened, that happened a second time in another class with another group told me to move. So I learned after that, I went to two more classes, I think, but I learned don't sit down until someone else comes in the room and ask them where you can sit. Um, and so that wasn't good. But then the worst was there was a, a woman there who is an ethicist and I forget her name, but she was super impressive and famous and amazing. And we were in the dining hall, which of course the architecture at Union is just spectacular. Mm -hmm. we're in this beautiful mm -hmm. dining hall, this Harry Potter-esque dining hall. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting at these, you know, sitting in chairs and they had the faculty presentation, a faculty panel. And it was amazing. I mean, the faculty were brilliant and, and engaging and interesting. And she gave an amazing talk and she closed it by saying, and my favorite theologian is not a theologian at all, but a black lesbian separatist, Bell Hooks. And she gave this beautiful quotation from Bell Hooks that just tied everything she set up in a bow. And it was perfect. And I'm like, okay, see, this is why I want to be here. Well, a black student, prospective student stood up and he said, when it's question and answer time, he said, well, I have a question for you. You mentioned a black lesbian separatist, but what about Romans that says homosexuality is wrong? Well, she stood up and pointed at him and said, if you don't like our kind of diversity, I suggest you leave. And I sat there and watched the only three black people in the room stand up and walk out. Oh boy. And they were kind of locals from Harlem. You know, they were looking mm -hmm. at the seminary and they walked out. They said, okay. And they walked out. So I'm standing with a group of students afterwards. And I said, I said, um, I said, that was outrageous. 
And they're like, I know, can you believe that guy said that? And I said, well, wait a minute. I can't believe a professor told black students to leave. And they said, well, you know, he's a fundamentalist. I said, well, look, if we're not in conversation with fundamentalists in this country, we're not in the Christian dialogue. And they, and somebody else said they have nothing to contribute. So I'm thinking I'm a straight white guy that wants to be a United Methodist pastor in Kansas. Mm -hmm. What the hell am I doing here? Hmm. Right. What am I doing here? And the, you know, the irony of this is I was the most, one of the most liberal students at SMU hmm. advocating for issues on race and homosexuality and all these different issues. And I get to union and, you know, it's, you're, I'm chopped liver. Yeah. So I decided, okay, I'm not going. So I, um, and then at ILIF, in an unrelated story, I had interviewed for their presidential scholarship. They have one in leadership and one in academics. And I received their scholarship for leadership, which was a full ride scholarship, um, full tuition and, and a stipend. And I thought, I can't turn this down. I mean, I had a scholarship from union that was basically the same amount of money, but it was probably half the cost and not the full cost. And I said, well, that seals the decision. I'm going to go to ILF. But I didn't know anything about it, mm -hmm. which was a mistake. Um, so I went to my, <laughs> in the fall. This is a true story. I got to my first class, the first week of class. I walked into the field ed office and I said, "I want to, um, I want a student appointment." You know, while I'm in seminary, I want to preach at a church. And the guy looked at me like I was an idiot. He said, "We don't have any of those appointments." I said, "What? You're the field ed office. You have all the connections, and how does that work?" He said, no, we don't have the demographics out here. I said, well, at SMU, all the students at Perkins were at churches. And at St. Paul in Kansas City, all the, all the folks in, are serving churches. And I said, yeah, that's, a, it's, that's Texas and Kansas. That's very different from here. So we just don't have that. We don't have them. You'll have to find your own place to serve in ministry. So that was shocking. You'd think someone would do that research before they applied to a seminary. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think before you moved in and, and signed up and got your class list, you would think about your field ed experience, um, which I didn't. So I ended up actually working at a group home for two years, a, a Disciples of Christ group home uh, for two years in Denver, which was a great experience, but um, it wasn't preaching in the church. So, wow. You, you, I went through a multiple range of emotions <laughs> listening to your experience at Union. Oh. Um, and it, and it really is, um, I'll just say, I find it interesting based on where you sit now and, and the work that Isn't you that do now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting. So you you get your MDiv from ILIF yeah. and return to Kansas East. Yes. Um, and go through ordination and deacon first, uh, then elder. 
and you're serving congregations in that time? Yeah, so your your intuition was right. I mean, ILF was a very liberal school back then as well, mm-hmm. um, which fits me theologically. I'm fairly progressive um, in my theology and in my kind of approach to the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I found ILF to be a lot less hostile in its kind of progressive take than Union was. Mm-hmm. Union was still very, there was a lot more anger than clarity. I mean, there was an effort. We got to tear down the man. Okay. Can we rebuild something in the wake of tearing down the man? Because that's really what I'm interested in. I mean, the deconstruction has to happen, but what about the reconstruction? Mm -hmm. Um, So ILIF was a very progressive place. Um, I had a really good experience there. The faculty were great. Uh, Students there were great. I have lifetime, lifelong friends from, from my experience at ILIF. So, um, and I spent all of my student loan money on camping gear for camping four seasons in the mountains. So I um, love backpacking and camping and I'm not a huge skier. I prefer cross country skiing, but I did a lot of skiing while I was out there and um, just made the most of the mountains. That was really the draw. Mm-hmm. So that, was, mm-hmm. that was terrific. Um, but I came back to Kansas and I was appointed to two. So I was appointed to two churches, one in Wathena and one in Elwood, which is in the northeast corner of Kansas. And if you look at a map, it's the part of Kansas that keeps us from being a rectangle. It's where the Missouri River takes a bite out of the northeast corner of Kansas. So that's where those two churches are located, uh, right across the river from St. Joe, Missouri, about an uh, about an hour north of Kansas City, um, but not but very close to Nebraska. In fact, the county touches both Missouri and Nebraska. So it's the very far corner up there. And it was two towns whose combined population were smaller than the high school I'd attended. So <laughs> it was different. And, um, and you know, I kind of, I kind of grew up there, you know, I became a pastor for the first time I became, uh, I got married when I was up there. I had my first child when I was up there, I became a husband and a dad. Um, I kind of grew up in some ways in those three years at those two churches and they were terrific. You know, I came out of ILIF with all kind. I knew everything, man. I was so smart. And, um, I had a, I had a ponytail and a full beard. Um, really? Yeah, I did. I wore it 10 years. I need to see the ponytail Mark Holland. I I need to see that. There's evidence out there. No. But um, so I was pastoring these two churches and they just, it was, I was 27 when I started. And one of the women finally said to me, they said, you know, we weren't really ready for, we, we had prayed for a younger pastor. Um, we had hoped for someone our children's age, not our grandchildren's age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, we were okay taking a woman. We'd never had a woman pastor, but we'd be okay with that. And, We'd never have a, had a pastor of color. We'd be fine with that. I guess we just weren't ready for a pastor um, with um, with a beard. <laughs> I'm like, a beard? Are you kidding me? So anyway, when I left a year later, so that conversation happened about midway through my time there, my three years. So I, when I left, I said to her, I said, you know, remember this conversation? She said, I do. And I said, was it really the beard that bothered you or is the hor- was the hair just too horrible to say out loud? And she said, it was too horrible. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. 
so these, you know, they were so gracious and warm and, mm. you know, no one should have to suffer through the first three years of any pastor learning to preach. Um, I, you know, I lived in the parsonage across the street from the church. Um, it was a, it was a really good endearing experience for me living in a small town for the first time. And, you know, coming from Kansas city, Dallas and Denver, to yeah. walking in Elwood, you know, it was a big, it was a big change, but it's what I wanted. You know, I really wanted to be a, I wanted to be the pastor. I wanted to preach every Sunday. It was my lifetime dream. And I had some chances coming into the conference. I was offered to be a campus minister. I was offered to be an associate pastor, one of the larger churches in Kansas city. And I said no to all of it. I said, I really want to be a pastor and I'll go anywhere. And so I was um, appointed up there um, and it was a great experience. So those were my first three years. And it was different. You know, my folks up there used um, used the N-word a lot hmm. to describe black people. Hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I it was it was it caught me off guard a lot. And it caught and it and my so my now ex-wife, um, my wife Julie and I, we sat down and talked. And we had to come up with a strategy because we couldn't just remain silent like this. And so we came up with a, we can't, we had to come up with something to say. So we decided we would say, I don't think Jesus wants us to talk like that anymore. You know, we had to put Jesus in there, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we, we had to say something. And so we did, we started saying that and it would happen in meetings. It would happen in um, casual conversation. It happened at the bank. It would happen at the post office. And I would just say, and Julie would say, I don't think Jesus wants us to talk like that anymore. And it did have an impact. I mean, it gradually, people stopped saying it around us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I was surprised at how easily that language tripped off the tongue of church members. Hmm. Um, having grown up in a very diverse environment, hmm. that was never a... Uh, now, SMU was not diverse, and Iliff wasn't super diverse, but Dallas is diverse, and so is Denver. Mm -hmm. The schools themselves were not. But I just couldn't – I couldn't believe it. But I do think that, um, you know, that was something to something to learn and grow from because uh, having to find your prophetic witness on the fly at age 27 with people who are my grandparents' age. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it, again, it does speak to, you know, sort of these parallel conversations of how do folks with progressive theology, progressive leaning theology, remain in conversation with fundamentalist. Right. Um, and there's the, the, the pulpit of conversation. And then there is the seeing them in the grocery store and in the bank and, you know, places where preaching is not really appropriate. <laughs> and so there has to be another way to speak to, speak to those systemic sins. Right. That doesn't necessarily look like just bringing the man down, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Right. Well, I had an experience too while I was in Wathena and Elwood. Um, there was literally a cross burning in a yard in St. Joe, Missouri with a family. 
who turns out they were um, from Europe, Mediterranean from Europe. Um, so, but they were new to the neighborhood and the cross was literally burned in their yard and it made the news. And so I preached about it and I had this really radical sermon, you know, I said, and I just asked people, do you know people personally who would burn a cross in somebody's yard? Everybody knows. Yep. We all know somebody who would do that. Either family or acquaintances. I mean, people know who that tribe is. And I, I said, you know, I think we need to, um, I think we need to be nice to black people. And then I said, and you know, people who don't speak English, you know, I think we need to be nice to people who don't speak English in this country. And I said, and I think we need to be nice to gay people. Okay, let's pray. You know, that was my whole sermon right there. I mean, that was mm. radical as it got. We should be nice to people. And you know how the church people are, you know, they meet in the parking lot afterwards and they assign someone whose job it is to go talk to the preacher on Monday. Mm -hmm. So they assigned this woman and she came in and <laughs> saw me on Monday and she said, okay, your sermon, um, you know, it was good. Um, which it really maybe wasn't a very good sermon, but you know, she said it was good. And we agree. Uh, you know, we've talked about it. We agree that um, we should be nice to black people. And we agree that we should be nice to people that don't speak English. Um, but um, uh, I don't think there's any gay people in Elwood, Kansas. And of course, I was young, so my pastoral filter was not well refined. <laughs> I blurted out, well, if you were gay, would you live in Elwood, Kansas? <laughs> and she thought about it for a minute and she said, no, I'd move to Kansas City. And I said, I would too. And, you know, maybe we can be nice to gay people so they don't have to move to Kansas City. She said, oh, I see what you're saying. So, you know, that's that little, you know, you talk about the progressive theology. I mean, is that progressive? Uh, I would not say so. <laughs> I wouldn't think so. But, the, um, but that, you know, finding the, the, Finding your voice, and I've said this everywhere I've gone, you know, you always have to find your voice. And finding my voice for the first time as a pastor, you know, it took a while. And when I changed appointments, it took a while. And when it, you know, everything I've done, I've had to find my voice anew. Um, and you kind of got to find it based on the circumstances in which you're serving. Let me ask a question on that. Um, you know, looking back, um, on, on your years of ministry and particularly at the intersections that you found yourself in. Um, you know, I sometimes, you know, look back on my you know ministry and wonder like, maybe I was a little too harsh <laughs> with some, some folks. And then there are some times that I'm like, gosh, I should have gone in. Like I really should have gone in. Yep. When you think about these moments, you know, with those first congregations and encountering the N-word and encountering language and, and ideas that are dehumanizing of others. Do you look back and, and, well, they were just trying to figure out their lives and, and I, I'm a disruptor. Or do you look back and like, gosh, I was going to be gone anyway, so I might as well have just gone all the way in. Like, how do you how do you reflect on that? 
You know, I felt pretty good about the balance I found in my first appointment. I felt pretty good about, I don't feel like there was ever an issue that came up that we swept under the carpet. Um, you know, we tried, I tried to address them as best I could. And I do think, um, you know, no regrets. I, uh, refl- I always say re- in life, reflections, no regrets, right? Um, mm-hmm. That um, I don't look back at any situation. I mean, my, my hardest one was an 80-year-old member of the trustees was showing me his garden, and he used the N-word. And I was, I was afraid to say something. But I girded my loins and I said, I don't think Jesus wants us to talk that way anymore. And he stared at me for a really long time. And then he finally said, yeah, you're probably right. And then we went on with our conversation. But I just thought, you know, this guy is not going to be moved by an interesting sermon about race relations and race, you know, such. But that little bit of a witness of what can he absorb in this moment? And what can I muster? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know that was you know I just had never heard those words come out of an adult mouth before, and um, and a church member, a trustee at the church. Um, so yeah, so I I felt pretty good about it. You know, I left feeling like was there more to do? Sure, but you'd have to be there longer, right? You'd have to mm-hmm. you know you'd have to commit long term. I was there three years. Yeah. Um, so, but it was a good experience. I would say it was a good experience. And it does, it does mess up the racist people are evil, are all evil. And it messes up the, um, you know, the homophobic people are all bad people. And it does really kind of say, okay, people are complicated. And people have blind spots and people grew up in areas that are different explanation, no excuse, right? Mm. Really kind of explains the human condition. It doesn't excuse the behavior. It doesn't make it right. It still needs to be challenged and confronted and addressed. Mm-hmm. But it, mm-hmm. it was it was interesting for me because I always assumed people that use the N-word were just the evil people out there that were wearing hoods. I didn't know people in churches use that uh, language. And so I had to, I mean, it was a little mind-blowing, but it was... Um, and coming out of a very politically correct culture at Iliff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. <laughs> Where you um, you tiptoed around in class based on what you said, you know. Um, it, was, uh, it was a very different environment. But it did, you know, I had an appreciation for some folks who had a, have a long way to go on race relations, have a long way to go on human sexuality issues, um, who you know, we're making it through the day somehow. So earned some compassion, but also kind of redoubled my commitment to, we've got to address these issues. They are more present than we think. Yeah. Yeah. We have to address it. And so that's, you know, that was a pretty important part of my ministry, my start to ministry. So tell me how we get to mayor Mark Holland. (laughs) Well, that's that's interesting, too. So I was appointed to Trinity in Kansas City, Kansas. I had a chance to come home to my hometown. 
and pastored at Trinity um, for 18 years, uh, 19 years, 19 mm. years from, ni uh, from 99 to um, 18. Okay. And I wanted to come back to Kansas City, Kansas. I had asked to come back to Kansas City, Kansas. Um, that's not, I don't know if you know how the appointment system works. That's not how it works. Oh, I'm, I'm aware. I'm not in it, but I'm aware. <laughs> One of the things that also happened was um, Scott Jones became our bishop. And I had advocated for his election. I voted for him. I was a delegate. I voted for him. I, I lobbied for him to come to Kansas City or to Kansas at that time. And, um, and he and I got crossways not very long thereafter. And he got crossways with a lot of people. And he's crossways with the whole denomination now. Um, mm -hmm. I think we, I don't know what happened, but a lot of us who voted for him have repented of that. Um, well, one of the things I reflected on in the past because was that I ran for city council in 2007. I'd been in Trinity eight years. I'd never run for office. And so I asked people, you know, I'm thinking about running for the school board. Um, and I know there were, I had, colleagues who had served on school board, you know, that, and I thought about city council. So I asked around and people said, you know, you ought to run for city. Where do you live? And I told them, they said, well, you ought to run again for city council against that guy because we could use an upgrade there. And I did, I ran, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I have some friends who didn't know what they were doing. So I ran this first campaign and I was elected by 35 votes out of 13,000 cast. Mm. Um, which I called a mandate of the people. Mm. Um, but I barely won against a big name incumbent who mm. had served for 16 years in public office. His brother was a state senator, um, just a big name in the, in the community, but he didn't do anything and I beat him. And I served six years on, well, I served for four years and then, and I had to get permission from, the, from my wife in this order um, from the bishop and from my staff parish. And so everyone was willing. The bishop did say initially, he and I give Scott Jones credit for this, he did support my appointment while I was running for office. Um, but he, um, he did say, well, you can't take any money from it. You can't have another job. And I was like, hmm. um, or he's gonna make me go three quarter time you know, so that I mm -hmm. can justify another job, but then that messes with your pension, all these, all this stuff. So mm -hmm. I said, well, I really hate to do that. You know? And he said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, it pays a thousand dollars a month. And he laughed and he said, okay, you can keep that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he didn't make me go three quarter time, which I appreciated, but I did serve um, for four years and had a good experience and we all agreed to do it again. So I ran and was reelected easily the second time. And then two years in the, ex the current mayor, Joe Reardon reached out to me who we all thought was gonna run for a third term. He said to me confidentially, he said, I'm not gonna run. I think you should run for mayor and I'll endorse you. So we talked it over again with my wife, with the bishop. It would mean that I needed to go quarter time at the church because it's a full-time job. Mayor is full-time. Yeah, yeah. Or I needed to leave the church altogether. Let me tell you about my hindsight. If I knowing now what I, if I knew now what I knew, if I knew then what I know now, I would have left the church hmm. and just taken a leave of absence from the church and just been mayor. Mm -hmm. uh, doing both was too much. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I was elected mayor and served for four years. Now, reflecting on that, it didn't occur to me at the time, but it was pretty clear to me there was no place for my leadership in the Kansas East Conference with Bishop Jones. Um, I had never been at, I, Bishop Moody had put me on new church development. I timed off of that, cycled off of that after, I don't know, seven years. But I was never asked to serve on any committee in, in Kansas East or the new Great Plains Conference. And so I didn't, I didn't run for office thinking, oh, I'm never going to get into the conference, so I'll have to do something else. I mean, the only leadership position I've had in the conference was the delegation, which I continued to get elected to. So knowing that there was no room for me under Jones intuitively is part of why I probably I had more I felt like I had more leadership to offer. And then I invested into my local community and um, was fortunate that I was able to stay at the church. You know, uh, Jones did appoint me to quarter time so I could stay at Trinity. I had a good experience um, in elected office in local government. And I'm, you know, I'm I'm grateful for that opportunity. Um, I learned a lot. I like to say I was on a 10-year in-service in municipal government, um, but it did give me an opportunity to address some of the bigger issues, to address the blight in the community. You know, I say everyone deserves to live in a neighborhood they're proud of. Everyone deserves to live in a home that they're proud of. And having these blighted properties, we needed to shift resources into cleaning up the blight. Um, we needed to shift resources into sidewalks around bus stops. We needed to shift resources. You know, we needed to think about um, crime and such. One of the things I did is I was um, one of my first, I hadn't been mayor six weeks and I was sitting on the dais um, for the graduation of the fire department. And I watched, I don't know, 25, 30 very qualified people walk across the stage to become firefighters not a single African-American and only one woman. Now, the, the city is only 40% white. How did we end up with a 99% white class or all white class? Well, I um, started asking questions and asking more questions. And then I made the decision with some community leaders to invite the Department of Justice in to have a conversation with our public safety, police, fire, and sheriff, which is 60%, by the way, of the budget of the city. Those three combined are 60% of the budget, public safety. And um, ask the question about recruiting, hiring, promoting, and retaining people of color and women in these departments because these are good paying jobs that people in our community could use. I mean, our median household income in our city at the time was $42,000 a year. And all of these paid more than that. So these are good. And that's median household income. This is one earner. So this is, um, this is good money. And this is a good um, opportunity. Well, it turns out, so we did a 18 month process. I convened a, a community wide group. Every commissioner, there are 10 commissioners, city, we call our city council commissioners. Um, we, each commissioner appointed someone to the task force. I appointed the chairs, the co-chairs. And 
we invited the sheriff, police chief, and fire and and police chief and fire chief. We invited the heads of all the unions. The unions all declined to come, um, but we invited everybody. And then we did an 18-month process that resulted in 30 different recommendations um, that were all adopted by the commission and on a nine-to-one vote. So we had a really, um, a really good piece. And I wanted to have a community-wide group because I wanted it to be based in the community and not just in the mayor's office because the mayor's office is transitory and the community though is around. So this was, uh, um, so that kind of work of, you know, that's more than you can do in the church, right? You don't get to look at this kind of practice. And we started this actually nine months before Ferguson, you know, Ferguson, Missouri is just four, is just four hours away from Mm -hmm. Kansas city, Mm -hmm. North of St. Louis or or near St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And, um, the Michael Brown shooting was rocking St. Louis nearby. And we had already begun this conversation. And my whole point is policing with a police force that reflects the community is a better police force. Um, And having public safety that reflects the community is better public safety. So I was really proud of that work, um, but it um, came at a cost. Yeah. Um, It came at a cost. But the um, but, you know, looking at the things you could do in the mayor's office to address some of the insidious problems of your city and in the community was really powerful and a a real privilege to do. Gosh. This is a dangerous question I'm going to ask. Did you feel more at home behind the mayor's desk than behind the preacher's desk? Hmm. It's an interesting question that I've thought a lot about. I I do think my calling is to the church. Hmm. And I do think there's a role in public office um, for value-driven people. And I would say that the, there was a lot about uh, the mayor's office and serving as commissioner that I found um, very rewarding. Mm-hmm. Um, rewarding enough that I ran for re-election for mayor. Um, mm-hmm. I lost that election. The, coral, the, um, the fire department uh, made it a goal to get rid of me um, because I raised questions about their contract and their ethical or unethical behavior, and I publish mm-hmm. names and dates and amounts. Um, mm. But the, um, you know, I, I thought enough, I, I enjoyed public office enough. And when I left the mayor's office in 18, I decided I'd been 19 years at Trinity, it was time to step down from Trinity as well. Mm-hmm. I was just ready for a change, you know, for, it was time for something new, yeah. which I didn't know what it was. Mm. Um, that something new, became mainstream UMC. Mm-hmm. And so that's, it was in, I left office in January of 18. And I went to the council of bishops meeting in Chicago to observe that spring when the mm-hmm. one church plan was adopted by them, mm-hmm. was accepted by them when they received the report and accepted the one church. Plan. Um, and then the traditional plan was going to be written 
And um, I got together with my friend, Reverend Dr. Nanette Roberts, who's, she's now retired, but she was the senior pastor at Grace United Methodist Church in Olathe, which is our largest progressive church in the Great Plains Conference. Mm -hmm. And she and I co-founded Mainstream UMC to be the voice and really served as the pack of the campaign to pass the one church plan. So that started, so I started, we had nothing, we had an idea. And we went, took that idea to annual conference in June, thinking we're gonna need to raise a quarter of a million dollars to do this. And my theory was there's a million dollars worth of angst in the United Methodist Church right now. <laughs> we only need a quarter of it. Yeah, yeah. But we need a quarter of a million dollars to run this campaign the way we think we need to run it. Mm -hmm. uh, to have some paid staff and to go after it. And we went to annual conference and raised $60,000 at annual conference and went live July 1. So um, there was a really positive response and it started the eight month sprint to, to St. Louis in 2019. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really how it started. And it was a lot, you know, my view is where, you know, to paraphrase our Lord, where two or more are gathered, there will be politics also. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the legislative process of general conference is an inherently political operation right? to treat it as such. Mm -hmm. We didn't choose the rules, but there are people on the other side who are, who understand the political process okay. and actively work it. And we can choose to be offended by that or we can win. Yeah. And so the model was let's go win. Um, and so we made a run at it. And of course we came up 50 votes short. We needed 26 people to change their mind and um, we didn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's how mainstream was born. Oh. Let's take a quick break. So, Mark, um, we were both on the floor of the special session in 2019. And um, we both know how it turned out. Um, we both had moments at the mic. Um, <laughs> when you think back to, and when it, this is the question, when you think back to the work you put into mainstream leading up to 2019. What are you, what are you grateful for? I'm grateful we did the work. Mm. I'm grateful we didn't um, lay down to see what would happen. I'm grateful we didn't um, say it's somebody else's issue to deal with. Um, I'm grateful that there was a coalition of folks around the country who, of people who are both left and right of center who love the church and love the church, not because of the institution. I mean, we all learned the little children's game with your fingers, you know, that this is the building, this is the, pe the church is the people. Um, I, I think the, it's about the people, 
And I, I'm really grateful. And, and there was a group of folks who said, we, we can't stand down. Um, what's happening to our church is wrong. Um, there is already a Southern Baptist church in this country. We don't need to be another one. We need to be United Methodist, um, which means we ordain women and we are the largest denomination in the world that ordains women that does not ordain gay and lesbian people. Um, and we are the largest church in the United States that ordains women that doesn't ordain gay and lesbian people. And we're one of the last mainline Protestants that doesn't. And so, um, and we also know that what happened with our church was not reflective of the U.S. delegates. And that's gets, that yeah, gets sensitive in a hurry, right? You talk about intersectional justice of dealing with folks in a global environment of being culturally aware and sensitive um, and needing justice in this country. And so for me, it was a big blow. You know, I had, um, I had marched in my first gay pride parade in 1988 and uh, as at SMU um, had you know, I ran for student body president at SMU um, and lost in a spectacular landslide. Mm -hmm. um, I actually received 600 votes. There were 600 votes cast the year before total. And I received 600 votes and lost two to one. Um, but I was, oh, wow. I included in my materials, you know, support for the gay and lesbian students who had been denied access to the student Senate as an organization. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, ILF is was very, um, open and affirming. Um, and at Trinity, we had a, an open and affirming church. You know, we had a lot of gay members who were active at all levels of the church. Um, we actually became a reconciling church prior to 2016. And it's a hilarious story. We um, were getting ready for general conference and a retired pastor, John Stone King, one of my mentors who recently passed away, um, he said, you know, I think we ought to become a reconciling congregation and officially join RMN. We've never done it. And um, our district superintendent, who is new and a, leaned a little more conservative, you know, he jumped in and said, oh, look, um, you know, there's a process for that. There's there's materials. You want to have a long conversation with the church. You know, there's a lot of things to do. Move for approval. Second, all in favor, unanimous. Like he couldn't even finish talking and someone just said, move for approval. And mm -hmm. then I said, I think we ought to send him some money. And they're like, well, how much? He's like, I don't know. I think we should send him $5,000. Move for approval. Second, done. Mm -hmm. So we, um, but he wanted prior to 2016 to add our name to the roster of churches that were supportive of RMN. Um, so that's how we became a reconciling congregation at, at Trinity, um, officially a reconciling congregation. So I felt like we'd been working on this my whole ministry yeah, and, and seeing how ready, you know, and so many um, great mentors of mine in ministry in great plains in Kansas East and great plains who were gay in the, in the closet. And, you know, it was, it was scary when, when, when Jones was here because he was so adamant about the trials so everybody really kept their head down even more with Jones around. Um, so he just he just worked, I think, to intimidate everybody into submission. Um, so really, it was we were highly motivated to get this changed. 
So for me in St. Louis, like everyone, it was just devastating. Um, and it was particularly upsetting that two thirds of the U.S. delegates voted against it, against the traditional plan, voted for the one church plan. And it was votes from outside the United States. I mean, 60% of the votes for the one for the traditional plan, 60% of them came from outside the United States. And the irony is it really only, you know, it really only imposed on the U.S. church. And that's, um, there's a justice issue there. I mean, there's a, there's a problem. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it left me like most of us pretty agitated and animated and mainstream was going to be done. We had signed up for eight months mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now we're going to keep going. And so we, redoubled our efforts. We continued for the next year. We worked hard um, supporting folks running for um, delegate in the spring of 2019. We had a very successful elections in the U.S. We um, shifted. And, and let me ask, let me ask a question about that. Because um, you, you were about to say that, you know, you shifted the, the equation in many ways um, of the delegations going into general conference that we end up not having yet uh, but do you feel like I mean I, I I'm just aware that without the special session of 2019 we don't get the annual conference sessions of 2019 that those were direct responses mm -hmm. to the special session and so do you draw any straight lines from your work with mainstream to the annual conference sessions um, I mean, in Florida, only centrists and progressives were elected to our delegation. Right. Um, and that is a story. There's a similar story across the U.S. connection. Do you do you think that some of that was because of the work? I, some of it was. It was a much broader coalition than just mainstream. I mean, we try to do our part. Um, I wouldn't give us credit for that. I think it was a lot of grassroots folks, a lot of folks who never heard of mainstream that were doing that work. Um, I think we were certainly tapping into the ethos of the time and match the ethos of the time. But I would, you know, we um, were providing a lot of materials, a lot of resources, a lot of information, a lot of connecting folks to try to work those elections. So I wouldn't say that we I'd be hesitant from for me or for mainstream to take a lot of direct credit for those elections other than we were a part of the mix. We were one of the voices in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we were all in, um, yeah. but it was, it was such a broad based movement that it was just grassroots. I mean, people mm -hmm. just rose up and, you know, it was kind of personal for me too. I was at the general conference in 2016 Portland and made the motion asking the bishops to, um, lead us forward out of this mess. You know, we had just had the, there was a petition in committee to allow funding to help prevent suicide among LGBTQ youth. And that petition failed in committee. And there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, it was bad. People were going ape and um, very angry very upset and, and rightfully so. I mean, what a, what church 
doesn't say we're going to support ending suicide for gay youth. I mean, it's outrageous that that failed in committee. Um, and so it was in the light of that, that the bishops were going to make a speech. The bishop, bishop did do a presentation. I thought it was completely worthless because it didn't address the elephant in the room. And so at lunch, I was talking to some members of the delegation and I said, of Great Plains, and I said, I think we ought to make a motion. We ought to ask the bishops to lead and make a motion, ask the bishops to lead. Oh, don't do that. You can't upset the bishops. Oh, don't do that. Well, I asked, I went to Adam Hamilton and I said, Adam, I think we should, um, do this. He said, Oh, I think that's a great idea. If you, if you make the motion, I'll second it and speak to it. So I made the motion asking the bishops to lead. Adam seconded it. It passed. Well, it didn't pass. Then it did pass. And it was kind of a mess. And then um, the bishops all left and came back with the plan to do the commission on the way forward. And um, we voted to accept their work. And that was a shenanigan. We almost didn't accept their suggestion. Finally did. And um, it started, the, so watching the, from that point, watching this process going to 2019, I, I felt like I had a personal investment in it, if you will. Um, and then watching it fail of all that work, I mean, two years of work, three years of work since 2016, all the work the bishops put in, the commission on the way forward to be completely sabotaged um, by traditionalists who just weren't who who wanted want control of the church um, and want trials and want to kick people out. Um, it was just devastating. Absolutely devastating. I'm connecting the story that you told about union. Hmm. To this, to this moment now, and I know that you stayed in communication. Though maybe it's strategic, um, but stayed in communication with traditionalists, mm -hmm. those who've left, those who stayed. I'm curious. what keeps you in conversation with those traditionalists? And maybe it is just strategy, but what keeps you talking to individuals who are not just seeing the world differently, but using your words, interested in controlling the forward movement of the church, mm -hmm. particularly in the US? Yeah. Well, I do think it is partly strategic. I think we need to be um, a little more transactional in how we communicate with people to get things done politically. Um, I would say I'm willing and able to do that. Though what's funny is I it seems very edgy in the church and I'm I'm not near edgy enough that way for politics. Um, but it's just, you know, having been in the political world of how you get votes, whipping votes, you know, I told everyone that the, the IQ required to be mayor was the ability to count to six because you can't get six votes. You can't do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, you can't even adjourn your meeting. You know, mm -hmm. you can't do anything. Uh, 
Yeah. So if you can't count to six, you're you're sunk. And I think vote counting is a part of it. And I think talking to people with whom you disagree is essential to get to what you want. I also think from a personal perspective that um, while I feel passionately about inclusion, I, I also it goes back to kind of my discussion with the trustees, too, you know, at my first church that. I can't put people in a box that it's all bad people who think this way, that that people are more complicated than that. And there's a lot of reasons people come at what they do and why they do it. And so I think that makes me more sympathetic. You know, I'm much more sympathetic with groups, people who genuinely believe what they talk about versus the folks who use this language for power and, and such. You know, I look at um, a character like Ted Cruz who would talk out of both sides of his mouth for whatever political gain he can get. You know, um, I have very little respect for some of the things the Institute for Religion and Democracy does. You know, they have accused, you know, the National Council of Churches and mainline churches of being Marxist. I mean, they're so far right and out the out there. That group's hard to talk to. Hmm. Um, I can say the folks at Good News WCA, GMC, through the years, I've had more constructive conversations with just about what do you want? What do we want? How do we, is there a way to work together? Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's, you know, there, there is a, there is a point at which, no, you can't work together. You know, you're going to work against each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that dialogue is important. And I do think how we do accountability matters. I think we do need to do accountability for the harm that's being caused. And I think we need to, you know, I had a, someone write to me recently, you know, we don't want to become them. We don't want to be mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think that's a part of the, part of the challenge, but I do think staying in dialogue and respecting people, even when you fundamentally disagree, um, I think is what the gospel calls us to do. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the John, the passage, John 17 of, of unity in, in yeah. Christ, you know, Jesus didn't say, I want you to all agree. I want you to love one another. Um, and I don't feel like the way the, the trials and such really reflect that love. And that's why we need to stop them. Mark, one of the things that, people appreciate about you and I'll just name that some people also are concerned at times that you bring to the table (laughs) you you do bring a degree of political acumen that um, most of our clergy the majority of our clergy particularly United Methodist clergy just don't seem to have Um, you are willing to tell the truth from your perspective unapologetically. You are willing to say out loud things like, you got to know how to count to six. (laughs) Um, That we sometimes don't want to do because then it's, you know, it's a, it's a vote and it's election. It's not a, a spiritually discerned moment, you know, like, um, how how do you balance 
your understanding of the politics of our institution with your call. Hmm. Um, yeah, how do you how do you how do you hold those together? That's an interesting question. Um, I I I did my doctoral work at St. Paul on holy conferencing and was really struck by John Wesley's adamant belief that holy conferencing is a means of grace, similar to communion, Bible study, worship, ho holy conferencing he put on that same level. He put church meetings as important as a means of grace or as a means of grace, just like these other things that we that are sacred. And he elevated church meetings to the level of sacred and believing that, um, you know, that I used the phrase earlier, where two or more are gathered, there'll be politics also. That scripture, where two or more are gathered, I will be present with you is a conflict scripture. It's about how do you deal with people in the church who aren't doing the right thing? Well, you go to them one by one. And if they don't listen, then you bring three people with you. And if that doesn't work, then you bring them before the congregation. And if that doesn't work, you kick them out. Well, Jesus said in these conversations, I will be present with you. Where that's where he said that. And I think that um, and John Wesley's view of holy conferencing, when the spirit is present in the discerning process, that there's something good that happens. Um, and so for me, and so that was my whole that was my whole doctoral work was was looking at, and I convened as part of that a conversation with the 10 Methodist churches in Kansas City, Kansas, um, about mission and ministry and what we're doing here. Um, and had tried to, tried to have a holy, structure a holy conference around what we do as churches in an urban area um, that are struggling to reach people. So I think that, I think it's a pretty integral part. I do think the political process Politics is neither good nor evil, right? It is just, it just is what it is. It's a process of mm -hmm. how people get things done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's politics in the family. There's, you know, there's politics in the pew. There's politics everywhere we go. I think um, we need to appreciate that this is how we've done it. And I'm grateful we have a democratic system in the United Methodist Church, you know? Mm -hmm. We would not do well under an authoritarian model where there's a big dude in charge and we all say, okay, that wouldn't fly. It wouldn't happen. It, just it wouldn't, wouldn't. <laughs> it would, we wouldn't be there. Though I do tell everybody the Methodists were only one divorce short of being Catholic ourselves, right? If Henry VIII hadn't wanted a divorce, um, he wouldn't form the church of England. And if we didn't no. have the church of England, we wouldn't have the Methodists. Now that's, that's a whole conversation we'll have another day, Mark. Cause uh, yeah. So I do think the political work connects with my calling mm. in terms of working for the greater good, working together for the greater good. I think that's why we come together for worship. I think that's why we come together in Bible study. I think that's why we come together for elections. We got to work together for the greater good. And that's, um, and I think if we have some, if, if we're, willing to embrace that process and not just write it off and embrace it as a, as holy conferencing. I think that, um, 
I think that makes it powerful and workable. As you look back over the last few years, um, you know, the protocol, then the COVID pandemic, postponing of general conference, the launch of the GMC disaffiliations. What have you learned about the politics of holy conferencing? Well, it's interesting, you know, you've talked about after 19 and the um, pandemic has really changed everything. And I can tell you personally, I went through um, a lot of loss through 19 and 20. Um, you know, I left Trinity after 19 years. It was a huge loss of community. Um, I'd raised my kids there. Um, they appointed a biblical literalist after me who chased off all the gay people by the end of the summer and all their allies by Christmas and voted a year later to close the church. Oh um, which is a devastating loss um, for our community and for, you know, for the folks, not just in the church, but it was, you know, a big loss. I um, went through a divorce in 2020, um, which is the greatest loss and grief I've ever experienced. Um, and then feeling like we're losing the church, you know, it's this um, generational long love affair of my family with the church. Um, boy, there's just a lot of layers of loss. And so for me personally, I have experienced loss in ways over the last three years that I've never experienced before. And, um, and experience that loss with the sure and certain hope of resurrection to new life, right? And um, that it's funny that in the midst of some of that loss, one of the things that came to me is the, is the funeral liturgy that I've preached 170 times um, that says, you know, when we bury someone, we do so in the sure and certain hope of resurrection. And looking at 2019 in that lens, the St. Louis meeting, looking at uh, divorce in the lens of the sure and certain hope of resurrection, looking at um, the loss of Trinity um, and believing in resurrection. I mean, I think that for me, um, so I've been on sort of a personal journey of loss and resurrection similar to where the church is, you know? And so I think what I, learned about holy conferencing is holy conferencing is um, it's a lot about um, finding resurrection and, and joining together with the people of faith to do the work. And there's a lot of holy conferencing that goes on um, with our mainstream board members meetings. There's holy conferencing that goes on with the coalition meeting groups yeah. that are meeting. Mm -hmm. um, I've had the privilege of traveling around the country um, both in 19 and 20, as well as now, again, um, talking to different groups about what's happening at General Conference. And um, it's uh, our church is in need of resurrection. 
um, the post-pandemic church. I, I say it this way: the, the mm. church is church is hard on a good day. I mean, mm. you ask our pastors who are toiling in the pulpit, and it's hard on a good day. And I have pastors who tell me you're not really a pastor because you missed the whole pandemic. You were not. I was not in the local church mm. during the pandemic. I was not in the local church during 2019 with the uh, gay and lesbian issue. I was not in the church during disaffiliations. So I have colleagues at Great Plains who are like, you're not even a pastor anymore. <laughs> you set <sat> out, <laughs> out the most important part of the ministry, the hardest part of the ministry. Mm. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that what I've, what I've learned about Holy Conferencing is it's, well, and it's one thing, too, it, well, you've got to work at it. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. to push. And I think one of the number one, if I were to write a leadership book, it'd be called Push. Because I think that's what leaders do. I think you push for change. You push and push and push. Um, and I think the um, I, I think we have to continue to push for general conference. And that's one of my concerns. And one of the things that mainstream is trying to say, screaming, don't go back to sleep. This isn't over yet. And it could get bad. Like the options on the table are it's this is a this is a Rubicon moment, a point of no return for the church. We absolutely have to get this right in 2024. Um, and so we need to continue to push and we need to push through our own sense of loss around the pandemic and around the disaffiliations, the loss of friendships and colleagues and churches and the loss of um, just the loss. And we can't let 2024 be about loss. 2024 needs to be about resurrection. And um, I think we need to be people of faith to speak into that. And as the Baptists say, name it and claim it. Mm. Um, mm. To We need 2024 to be a point of resurrection for the church because it's um, it's been hard. Yeah. It's yeah. been hard. Do you have hope for the United Methodist Church? I do. You know, part of it is rooted in, I'm a third generation pastor in three different Methodist structures. Uh, My great grandfather was in the ME South. My dad was in the Methodist Episcopal Church and I was in the, well, he was in the Methodist Church and I'm in the United Methodist Church. And, um, these denominational names and structures ebb and flow over time. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we don't. Um, but I do have hope. I mean, I the church struggled with slavery and split. And then we reunited under very dubious circumstances in a time of segregation. And then we um, ordained women in 1956 36 years after women received the right to vote in this country. Um, 1972, we finally removed the prohibitions against divorced pastors serving in churches. That same year, we added prohibitions for gay and lesbian people. So the church has been this, this stutter step forward of progress, of grace. You know, I had a conservative pastor call me uh, it's been a couple years ago from Iowa. He said, now you should know I'm one of the leaders of the WCA here, but I just, you know, here's my concern. 
first, you know, it's uh, gay and lesbian people. Then it's LGB bisexual people, LGB Q, he's not sure what Q stands for, uh, LGBTQT, transgendered people. And he said, really, where does it end? How many more letters? What do we have to, what are you asking people to accept? And I thought about it and I said, you know, I, I don't know. Where does the grace of Jesus Christ end? I, I don't know. I mean, we ordained women in 1956. We took away the prohibitions for divorce uh, in 72. We um, have continually brought, we've, we desegregated our church in name. We're still working on the practice. Amen. But we've, you know, we have, we have continued to extend grace to marginalized people. Honestly, I don't know where the grace ends. And so my hope for the United Methodist Church is that the grace will continue to win out. The grace will continue to move forward. The grace will continue to call us to new places, even when we're uncomfortable or undecided or unaware. Um, that prevenient grace that John Wesley preaches is going to continue to pursue us and continue to enlighten us and continue to fill us. Um, my hope for the United Methodist Church is that grace moves forward. Rob Bell's book was Love Wins. Um, my hope for the United Methodist Church is that grace wins. Um, so that's my, that's my hope for the church. Mark, I am just deeply grateful for your willingness to share on this podcast so much of your life. Mm. Um, and I'm thankful for the ways that you continue to learn from your journey. And even the last few years of, of disappointment and loss, you, you're still out there fighting the good fight of faith and grace um, in the spaces that you're occupying. And so I just want to thank you for your work. Um, grateful for your witness and your advocacy, um, especially in this season of the church. And um, gosh, just grateful for your friendship, man. Like, yeah. my goodness. Well, Derek, I'm grateful for you. I appreciate your work with Mainstream. I appreciate your ministry with the podcast of Lifting Voices Up um, and your ministry with um, young people in college. Oh, my fave. My uh, fave. And your, uh, you know, your work as the co-lay leader in Florida, um, you're certainly using your leadership for the good of the kingdom. And so I thank you for that. Oh, I appreciate it, brother. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. Yep. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.